Uh, Frederick II was the Holy Roman Emperor and King of Sicily from 1220 to 1250. And the story is told that during his reign, he conducted a rather fascinating experiment. You see, Frederick wanted to discover the primordial language. That is, he, he wanted to know the language of Adam and Eve. In other words, if, if you raised a child without ever speaking to the child, what language would that child speak? What would come out of his or her mouth? Interesting question, wouldn't you say? So, so Frederick conducted an experiment, and this is what he did. He gathered a group of infants immediately after birth. All the babies were fed, clothed, given good rest. They were hugged, they were kissed, they were bathed. They were well cared for, all these babies. However, no one was allowed to speak to the babies, nor were they allowed to speak in front of the children. Because remember, he wanted to discover what language they would naturally speak. So not a word was spoken to these children. You know what happened? Every child died. A monk living at that time, he summarized Frederick's experiment with these words. He said, quote, The children could not live without words. Proverbs 18.21 says this, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat of its fruits. Faith words are powerful. We need words to live. And we, we, we need words to live not only to live physically, but also emotionally and relationally, don't we? I mean, think for a moment about your own perception of yourself. The way you think about yourself, your self-image. Friend, that is the accumulation of everything people have said to you about you over the years. In fact, it is impossible, I would suggest, for you to view yourself, to understand who you are, your strengths, your weaknesses, whether you are pretty or not pretty, whether you're handsome or not handsome, whether you're smart or not smart. It is impossible to understand yourself apart from what others say to you about you. Your self-image is the accumulation of what other people have said to you about you for your entire life. Words are very, very powerful. Indeed, who here hasn't been deeply wounded by something that someone has said to you? 
Who here has escaped that? None of us. Who here also doesn't know the regret of saying something, oh man, I wish I could take that back. But on the flip side, on the positive side, how many of you have experienced the sweet and life-giving blessing of an encouraging word? The words you speak, faith, are powerful. So you know what this means? It means a lot of things. But in particular, it means that we need wisdom when it comes to our speech. We need to know, especially as God's people, how to speak wisely. And this is precisely why we need our text this morning. Today we return to our study of Ephesians. We took a quick break from that last week for Valentine's Day. But we're back in our study of Ephesians. And as we've noted previously, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, it marks a turning point in the entire book of Ephesians. Beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul's message, as we've noted, it moves from doctrine to duty. It moves from creed to conduct. In chapters 4 through 6, the Apostle Paul draws upon the glorious theological realities he taught us in chapters 1 through 3, and he applies them to the Christian's life. And I want to argue that we see this idea on full display in chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. For as we observed two weeks ago, Paul's driving point in this section is simply this exhortation, and that is, change your behavior for biblical reasons. Right? Chapters 1 through 3, expounding upon the glories of what our God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And now in chapters 4 through 5, he wants to apply that to the Christian's life. And Paul, he, he makes it obvious for us. He connects the dots. In these several verses, 25 through 32, his main point is, look, Christian, change your behavior for biblical reasons. Right? As those saved by God's grace, to echo back to what he said earlier in chapter 4, we are to no longer walk as the Gentiles do. No, we are to put off the old man and to put on the new man. We're to replace sinful habits with godly practices. And we're to do so, as Paul makes clear, for biblical reasons. As pastor and author Tony Moreta has correctly pointed out, he writes, Christians should not only live differently from unbelievers, but they also should live differently for different reasons. We believe in God, sin, the devil, the spirit, the church, and Christ's death on the cross. These truths should affect the way we live. And you know what? The Apostle Paul would say, Amen. They should. And what follows in verses 25 through 32 are several sinful habits that Christians are responsible for. They're responsible for to put off and several corresponding godly practices they are to put on. Faith Community Church, 
if, if God has made you spiritually alive in Jesus Christ, if you have been predestined to adoptions as sons and daughters, if you've been chosen before the foundation of the world, if you are indeed God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, then Christian, please hear the full force of Paul's exhortation, then you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, but instead put on these godly practices. Right? Regardless of what others are doing around you in your life, you are responsible to put these on. And two weeks ago, we looked at the first three. We learned that we are to replace lying with truth-telling, sinful anger with righteous anger, and stealing with working. Well, now here in verses 29 through 30, Paul once again returns to this important topic of speech. And here Paul provides important instruction that we're commanded to heed. So if you haven't already, please turn with me in your Bible to Ephesians 4. That's page 978 in that paperback Bible. This morning, we're going to focus just on verses 29 and 30. But to better understand Paul's flow of thought, I'm going to start reading in verse 25. Right, so follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read. The Apostle Paul writes this under, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Again, notice as we've been working through here, he's giving a command and he's giving a biblical reason why. Why are we to speak truth to one another? Because of the church, we're members. Why are we not to give way to sinful anger? Because we don't want the devil. We believe in the devil to have a foothold. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now here's where we're going to be focusing this morning. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Amen. Amen. This is God's good word. Uh, let me let me ask you, and, and feel free to interact. I'm just going to take a couple of, of answers from you, but I want you to consider and, and respond to this. What is, what is your favorite flavor to taste? It could, it could be either a drink or a food. What's, what's something for you personally that makes your taste buds sing? I mean, uh, the goodie table always does, right? And praise the Lord for the people who bring the goodie table, okay? 
But what's, what's one of your favorite things, favorite flavors to taste? Chocolate. chocolate. You know, and we could stop right there. Yeah. Dark, hey, chocolate. dark chocolate, okay. <laughs> Do I hear even darker chocolate? Oh, dark chocolate, what else? It's something that your taste buds really enjoy. Vanilla? Vanilla? Oh. <laughs> Good for you, Paul. Okay. <laughs> we have some vanilla, we have chocolate. Anyone else? Garlic. Garlic, okay. Coconut. What's, a, what's a, a favorite flavor of yours to taste? One more. Citrus. Oh, citrus. Okay, yeah. That always is refreshing, right? Those, those are all sound great. And in fact, some of you might even be getting hungry right now, right? Those are good things to taste. But you know what tastes terrible? Soap in your mouth. And you know how I know? I think you know already, don't you? Because when I was a kid, on more than one occasion, my mother washed my mouth out with soap. She took me to the bathroom sink, rubbed a bar of soap around and in my mouth, then had me rinse it out before I was sent to my room. Have any of you ever experienced something like that and are willing to raise your hand, okay? Now tell me, why did my mom, and probably, I'm going to go on and guess here, your mom, do that? Well, why did they do that to us? You know why? Because what came out of our mouths was dirty or foul, right? We said something that was either mean coarse or vulgar. So to clean out our dirty mouths and to keep us from ever saying such awful words again, our moms washed our mouths out with soap. Notice in the passage I just read, particularly verses 29 and 30, Paul commands all Christians to replace corrupt talk with edifying speech. Here's the fourth thing that he wants us to replace. He wants us to replace corrupt talk, which is not limited to those things that would get your mouth washed out with soap, to replace corrupt talk with edifying speech. Like our moms, he wants our mouths to be clean, Indeed, I, I just want to just take a step back for a moment and notice, have you noticed Paul is very concerned with what we say? Have you noticed this? I mean, consider what, I mean, again, chapter 4, there's a turning point. Now he's focusing on the practical application of how a Christian should live our life. And one of the first chief concerns of Paul is our speech. I mean, what did Paul write in verse 15 of chapter 4? Remember what he said? He commanded us to speak the truth in love. And then what does he write here in verse 25? Or in verse 25? In that verse, we are commanded to replace lying with truth-telling. And then furthermore, in chapter 5, verse 3, which we're going to get to soon, Paul states this, quote, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, 
but instead let there be thanksgiving. And now here in verse 29, we're to do away with corrupt talk. Paul is very concerned. Part of what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord is that we take inventory and give careful thought as to what we say. As several commentators have pointed out, the Greek word that is translated as corrupt here in verse 29, it's used in the New Testament only to refer, in other situations, to rotten fruit or rotten fish. Let your senses picture that for a moment. In fact, interestingly enough, and we're going to circle back to this, Jesus uses the very same word when he talks about trees bearing bad fruit in Luke 6, 43-45. Same word. For that word is bad is the same word Paul uses here in 429. Corrupt talk is like rotten fruit or fish. And both are appropriate pictures for sinful speech, are they not? In this way, listen, corrupting talk like rotten fish and rotten food, fruit, it does not nourish you, does it? No, it makes you sick. It's displeasing. And we don't have to guess as to what corrupt talk looks like. The immediate context here in Ephesians helps us out. Corrupt talk would be lying. It would be rash words. Vulgar references. Vicious and unkind words. Gossip and slander. Uh, In my studies this week, I found the book of Proverbs to be very helpful. Uh, Proverbs uh, has a lot to say about speech. In fact, second only to the theme of wisdom, Proverbs gives the most attention to this topic of words and speech. It's estimated that one in every six Proverbs addresses the issue of speech. Did you know this? And there are two Proverbs that I, I want to direct, actually it's going to be three, but two Proverbs I want to direct your attention to to help us see both the content of corrupt speech as well as the impact of corrupt speech. And the first is Proverbs 12.18. I'm going to throw it up here on the screen. Notice here's the impact of something that would fall under this category of corrupt speech. The author says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Notice, when you, when you speak rashly, when you just pop off, We just speak in such a way as to inflict hurt. You are, the author of Hebrew, the author of Proverbs is saying you are doing something extremely damaging to those you are speaking to. Be it your spouse, your children, your family, your boss, your co-workers, your teammates, your neighbors. 
Proverbs likens such reckless words to the thrusts of a sword. Now, I, I this week really try to put my arms around that. And I really want us to put our arms around this, to really get this, because I think, at least for me, I, I don't feel the full weight of this. So to, to help us really see how serious a matter this is, I, I wanted to bring a sword up here, but I couldn't find one, so one of my kids' lightsabers <laughs> will have to do. Okay? So, stay with me, okay? Faith, the Bible repeatedly affirms that your words can have a lasting impact that can't be remedied. You can't take your words back. Once you speak a word, it's spoken. And reckless, harsh words are like the thrust of a sword. If I stab someone with a sword and then want to take it back, I can take the sword back, can't I? But the wound is still there in the person. Likewise, every time you speak a harsh or a rash word towards someone, it is as if you are thrusting them with a sword. In fact, depending on what you say, your words actually may do more harm than a literal physical sword thrust. I hate you, Mom and Dad. Sometimes I wish I didn't marry you. You're so stupid. Why did you do this? There is one whose rash words are like the sword thrusts. You stab, you can withdraw your sword, but the wound is still there. When we are reckless with our words, faith, it is as if we are a madman who is flailing a sword in a crowd of innocent people. However, we just don't hurt people with our reckless words when maybe we're upset or irritated. Please hear me. We can also do it in our humor. This is another way where the book of Proverbs helps us see what we should avoid in regards to corrupting talk. Listen to Proverbs 26, 18-19. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death, so is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I'm only joking. I'm just kidding. Is this not an accurate description of sarcasm? We harm someone with our words. We, we stab them. 
we poke them, we prod them, and say, hey, I was just joking. I was just kidding around. I was being convicted, so I wanted to make sure I really understood this. I looked it up. Sarcasm, sarcasm is defined as, quote, a cutting, often ironic remark intended to wound. Sarcasm is a form of wit that is intended to make the victim the butt of contempt or ridicule. In other words, sarcasm is reckless words dressed as humor. Yikes! That outfit. Did you look at yourself in the mirror before you went outside? Oh, I'm just kidding. I'm just, I'm just messing with you. Faith, Scripture does not condone this type of speech. Instead, it condemns it. Why? Because sarcasm never brings healing to a person. It only wounds them. It's corrupt. It, it degenerates. It tears down. It does not, as we're going to see in a moment, build up. It's corrupting talk. Stephen, can I hand this to you? Thanks. The prop's done. Thanks. Men, and I, listen, I am speaking to myself here. Let's just all just level playing field. Men, and I'm speaking to myself here. How often do you find yourself using humor at the expense of another person? Be it your friend, your spouse, your parents, those in authority over you. How would those closest to you describe your speech? You know, I think, and this is, this is my take. Man, I think we're, we're and, and maybe some of you women, but I'm just to the guys. We're easily drawn to sarcastic speech, and I believe part of the reason is because sarcasm, it shows off our quick wit, doesn't it? But men, please hear me. You can still be quick-witted. You can still be funny and lighthearted and disarming to your friends and not shoot firebrands and thrust swords in people. You can still be quick-witted and not make people the butt or contempt of ridicule. Indeed, Scripture commands you not to. In place of corrupting talk, notice we are only to speak in such a way that is good for building up as fits the occasion. Notice what Paul says there in verse 29, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, I want you to notice something. Based on the first half of Ephesians 4.29, we might expect Paul to say something like this. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but instead let fresh and clean talk come out of your mouth. But he doesn't say that, does he? No, now, now to be sure, please hear me, he does want us to speak pure words. But notice, the second half of the verse goes deeper because notice, he wants us to replace rotten words with words that edify and build up. 
as John Piper has insightfully written, he says this, it's not Christian just to stop swearing. It is not Christian just to put good language in the mouth instead. It is Christian to ask the deeper internal question, am I speaking now to edify? Is your mouth a means of grace? Faith, what if we made it our aim to do this? What if, please hear me, what if we had the humility to set aside what we want and we had the humility, God, I'm going to have you set the agenda for how I speak. How I speak to my friends, how I speak to my spouse, how I speak to my kids, how I speak in my small group. God, I know I want to say this to get a laugh. Lord, I want to, I want to say this to, to make much of myself. Lord, I want to say this, but you know what? I'm going to have you set the agenda for my life. I'm going to make it my aim to speak as only fits the occasion and may give grace to those who hear and build up one another. What if we came to church looking for ways to build one another up in our speech? What if we did this in our homes? I mean, imagine what would take place. Imagine what would happen in your marriage. Kids, imagine what would happen in your home if you spoke this way to your siblings. Imagine what would happen in our church if we looked for ways to build one another up. Do you build up others with your words? Or do you only try to build up yourself in front of others with your words? If I put it this way, Christian, when was the last time you really gave thought to how you speak? Because notice the reason why we're to put off corrupt talk and to put on edifying speech. Look again there at verse 30. As as Scores of commentators have pointed out, and I, and I agree with them, <laughs> good for them, I agree with them. The and in verse 30 connects these two verses together. This is the biblical reason why we're to put off corrupt talk and to put on edifying speech. Look at verse 30 when he says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Faith, the Holy Spirit, Spirit is not a phantom or a force. He's a person. And as this text makes clear, he can be grieved. Indeed, the root idea of the word grieve is to, quote, to cause pain. And the fact that the Holy Spirit can experience pain and sorrow and personal distress argues for his personal nature. Do you understand that every time you say a hurtful word to your spouse, every time you utter corrupt talk, every time you make someone the butt of your jokes through your biting sarcasm, you are grieving the Holy Spirit? Do you understand this? 
do I understand this? When I was, when I was 14 years old, my, my dad took me and my brother Dave uh, out fishing with one of my dad's close and, and best uh, business associates. My dad worked with this guy. He was very fond of him. And so he wanted to take me and my brother Dave out fishing with this guy. I was 14 years old. And while I was out in the boat, man, to my shame, to my shame, I was constantly cracking jokes all at the expense of my mom and my dad. I was, I was making light in front of my parents, all, get all this, all in front of my dad's good business friend. And the whole time thinking, I'm killing it. I am so funny. Making fun of my parents. And in the moment, my dad and his friend, they laughed and they went along. However, looking back now, I now understand they weren't laughing because I was funny or because I, they agreed. They were, they were trying not to have me be embarrassed. They were laughing so as to avoid embarrassing me. But when we got back in the car, I will never forget this. I'll never forget this. My dad was not angry at me. But he just looked at me and he said he was grieved by the mean and hurtful things I had said. And friend, I have to tell you, in that moment, see my dad, how he was grieved over the words I had said. I made a commitment that moment. I never want to see that again in my dad. I never want him to be grieved over what I say or what I do. Faith, how much more should it be with us and the Holy Spirit? Listen, in that car when my dad showed it, did I doubt that my dad loved me? No. That was not a question whether he loved me or not. I knew he loved me and cared for me. However, my sinful words did grieve him. And they, and they changed me. I, I have to tell you, I'm being completely transparent, that look in my dad's eyes, I have no doubt the Lord has used that to keep me from other sins. What would it look like for us to really acknowledge what Paul is saying in this passage? How would that transform the way we speak? You know, people will often say, you know, I'm just, I'm just such a people pleaser. I just, I just got to please people. Friend, could I suggest strive to be a Holy Spirit pleaser? For notice what Paul highlights about the Holy Spirit. The Spirit sealed us for the day of redemption. Here again, we see Paul going back to what he's already taught us. What did he previously teach us in chapter 1, verse 13? He taught us that the sealing of the Holy Spirit took place at the beginning of the Christian's life. The Holy Spirit himself living in us is the seal with which God has stamped us as his own. He's my own. She's my own. They have the, the Holy Spirit within them. The day of redemption, however, that Paul here is speaking about final redemption, looks forward to the end when our bodies will be redeemed. And all of redemption will be complete. So this is what I want you to see in verse 30. 
So the sealing and the redemption refer respectively to the beginning and the end of the salvation process. And in between these two points, we are to grow in Christ-likeness, taking care not to grieve the Holy Spirit. I love what John Stott has written. Comments on this verse, he writes, he says, the Holy Spirit is a sensitive spirit. In a good way, he means that. He says, he hates sin, discord, and falsehood, and shrinks away from them. Therefore, if we wish to avoid hurting him, we shall shrink from them too. Every spirit-filled believer desires to bring him pleasure, not pain. Faith, we're not to have any corrupting talk come out of our mouth, but instead words that edify. But and maybe you're feeling this right now. This is how I felt this week. Uh, I was convicted of my speech. And I, I know I shouldn't do it, yet I still do. And the question I was considering is, you know, what is needed for me, what is needed for you to actually obey the command here in Ephesians 4.29? And again, I think Proverbs is helpful here. Consider what Proverbs 16.23 says. The author writes, The heart of the wise instructs the mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. The heart of the wise instructs the what? Notice it's the heart that determines our words, isn't it? And does this come as a surprise to us? It shouldn't, because this is exactly what the incarnate Word of God, Jesus Christ, taught. Remember how I said that word for corrupting in verse 29 is the same word Jesus uses in Luke 6, verses 43-45? Notice what Jesus says there. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of, his, of the heart, his mouth what? Speaks. This, this is so important. Pay careful attention here, friends. I cannot overstate how important this is. Jesus is saying our communication problems aren't as a result of the people around us or our circumstances. I can, you know, this whole week I try to get underneath this. Like, how can I avoid? How can I justify this? And I couldn't. Please hear me. Biting sarcasm, harsh words, angry speech aren't as a result of what people have done to you. No, Jesus Christ tells you your communication problem are as a result of what your heart is treasuring. As John Calvin so poignantly and sharply said, the tongue exists to reveal our hearts. Look, all of us in this room, there is something we are valuing and treasuring at the core of our being. And whatever it is, it's going to guide and direct us. Because we live out of the treasure of our hearts. And often the things that we value are good things. Like the respect of your spouse or physical beauty. Or 
we could also really treasure being thought of as funny. Oftentimes the things we treasure are good things, and that's the problem, because when good things become your treasure, bad fruit emerges. When we have an evil treasure, that will produce the kind of corrupting talk Paul wants us to avoid. I mean, I would, I would suggest to you to please consider this is why men say such harsh, sarcastic words to others. Because in the moment, at the party, at the ball game, in the locker room, whatever, in the moment, what's most important to them is being thought of as funny or quick-witted. So instead of heeding and obeying the clear command of Paul, they'll speak these words. This is the same reason why a husband and wife will say mean things to each other. Often because the thing they're treasuring is being threatened. You see, when you begin to value and treasure something other than Jesus' faith in your heart, you know what happens when I, whatever, whatever it might be, in the moment, when I begin to value something more than Christ, I will dehumanize the people in my life. They will either become a vehicle to get what I want to have, or they're an obstacle. If they're allowing me to get what I'm really treasuring, I'm going to speak nice words to them, encouraging words, thankful for them. But if they become an obstacle, outcomes corrupting speech. But on the flip side, when a Christian father is treasuring Christ more than, say, his comfort, he will not lash out at his kids when they interrupt his peace and quiet. He will instead respond in a Christ-like way. Or when a Christian wife is treasuring Christ more than her husband's attention, she won't yell at him when he comes home from work. She will instead honor God in her response. Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. So this is where, as I bring this in for landing, and I appreciate you staying with me. All this means is this, faith. For you and I to change our speech, we need to change our treasure. And I, we could say it like this. To speak wise words, treasure the incarnate word. To speak wise words, treasure the incarnate word. This, I think, is what Jesus Christ, the incarnate word, is getting at. Because, you see, this is, this is what I want you to see. When I treasure Christ, you know what that does? It's, it's, it gets my focus off of me. It gets my focus off of myself, and instead of being self-absorbed, I'm God-focused and others-oriented. And you know what that allows me to do? It allows me to easily build up one another. It actually makes it more natural. And here's, here's, here's the thing. To... To, this requires 
Bible-saturated, spirit-empowered work where we identify the things we're treasuring more than God, we confess that, we return from it, but we can't stop there. For this to, to really to get the most miles and to apply this, we also need to feel the value and the worth of Jesus. We need to see that Jesus is more worthy of our allegiance than our wants, wishes, and desires. And friend, the place where we see the supreme worth of Jesus Christ is at the cross. For Christian, consider this. Although Jesus Christ was perfect, you know what? He was crucified as a criminal. Jesus was reviled. Jesus was mocked. Jesus was yelled at. Jesus was scorned. In other words, in addition to being physically afflicted in suffering, Jesus received a huge amount of verbal abuse. But for your sake, Christian, he did not revile in return. In fact, while on the cross, instead of speaking words of judgment and anger towards those sinful people who crucified him, what did Jesus say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them? What a Savior. You see, Christian, on the cross, Jesus controlled his tongue. You know why? Because I have not and you have not. This is what we mean when we say he lived the perfect life we failed to live. Jesus lived the perfect life we failed to live and he died the death. I should have died and bore the wrath of God's punishment for my sinful speech and yours as well. And then, Christian, listen to this. He was then raised to new life so that through faith in Jesus Christ, you could hear God say, the great speaker, you are my beloved son or daughter. I love you. Friend, let that word determine your perception of yourself. Let the love of Christ as demonstrated on the cross deepen your love for him and then live for Him. For when your heart is satisfied in Christ, when you're living for Him, your speech will be seasoned with salt. Your mouth will be a spring of blessing. To speak wise words, treasure the incarnate word. Faith, no one spoke to those babies and what happened? They died. Yet Christian, in Jesus Christ, God speaks to you. And he says, you are loved by me. What life-giving words. By his Spirit's power, let us go forth and speak words of life to those around us. Let us build one another up. Amen? Let's pray.